0: Hello, and welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? This podcast is a resource dedicated to those struggling with eating disorders. If you are struggling with an eating disorder or know someone who is, maybe a brother, sister, daughter, wife, we want to be here to provide resources and offer hope. I am Dina Lewis, and I'm here with my husband, co-host Brian Lewis. We are not doctors, but we do come with more than 20 years history in dealing with eating disorder. Whether you found us on purpose or by mistake, Whatever the case, we hope by the end of this episode, you have learned something, or at least, if you are struggling, you do not feel alone. Hi, and welcome back to Are You Gonna Eat Your Fat? I'm Dina. And I'm Brian. And today, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit in this episode about who I became during my eating disorder Starting out, you know, we've talked a little bit about my childhood and that I was a really good kid. I didn't cause problems. I had a great childhood. But then when this disease began, it took everything away from me. It took away, I think, my identity and who I was, who I could become. At the end, I remember feeling somewhat invisible, mostly to my family. And just because it was getting to be a time where, you know, it was the most difficult time of the eating disorder. And. A lot of people never spoke to me directly. That's how I felt. I'll just say those are my feelings. I never felt like I was spoken to. I was spoken about. And people would have get together and talk, but it was never directly towards me. And I will take responsibility in saying that I wasn't easy to approach. I was combative. I was argumentative. I never wanted to discuss what was going on because I knew where it was going to lead. It was going to lead to long, like, tears from my mom and my brother's being like you have to do something. We're not going to enable you any longer. Anyway, that's kind of some of the things I wanted to talk about in this podcast to share some of the things I recognized later in myself. You know, I was a master manipulator, which I'm not <laughs> I'm not happy about. I'm not proud of. I was also a liar, a stealer, and I never stole money from someone or I never robbed a store, but I stole people's Passion and I stole my mom's future thinking that, you know, she was going to lose me after she lost my brother at such a young age. And that just never really goes away. I mean, I can um, have as much recovery as I want and be, you know, successful now and have a future, but I still feel I'm to blame for what I went through because could I have stopped it? Maybe early on I could have, but it is a disease. And I do feel bad for what I put my family through. But anyway, some other things that I know that I felt I was feeling selfish, I really didn't comprehend how what I was doing was affecting other people. And I think I've shared it before in one of the other podcasts that, you know, I got to treatment and one of the doctors had shared with me that, Dina, you're slowly killing yourself. And I was just like, what? <laughs> I said, absolutely not. You know, I would never want to kill myself. But she said, you were slowly, progressively, not eating enough. You're killing yourself slowly. And it really hit me that that's what I was doing.
1: And there were times, and I'm sure anybody that's currently struggling and trying to be of assistance to somebody who they see in this disease, there was lots of triangulation. Nobody wanted to talk to Dina directly, so they would go to typically me. And they would say, you know, I'm concerned. I think Dina's going to die. And what can we do? And I think some of that started with the car accident. She had, Dina Dina had a, a brain injury and the road to recovery was not easy. So a lot of times the care was kind of behind the scenes and what can we do to support Dina? And what can we do as a plan to get her up and back in, you know, to the point where she was prior to the accident. So I think for a long time, I pointed to that and I had a lot of anger toward that as, well, this caused this. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it was about this instance that triggered everything else. And the truth is that, I mean, I'm not cutting to the ending to say, you know, there is no one thing. But, you know, when we talk about who you had become, there was a lot of avoidance. There was a lot of isolation. And a lot of times it alienated those friends and family who wanted to help, but didn't know how to help, saw that there was a problem, didn't know what to do about the problem. And I'm sure those words echo for anybody currently struggling. And the alienation part of it for me, you know, I tried one birthday to plan a surprise party and I invited all these people, Hey, it's a surprise party, birthday party for Dina to come. And the birthday party rolled around and I hadn't gotten any RSVPs and I hadn't gotten anything. And a couple of people said they were going to show up and I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. And then nobody showed up. And I was like angry at the friends. Like, how are you not part of Yeah, I invite you to a birthday party. Who doesn't show up to a birthday party? What the heck's going on here? But upon reflection, that was just the extent to which you had alienated everyone around you. And at the time, it was like, what kind of friends are these? You know, I can't believe they left us out in the lurch. But in actuality, they'd been reaching out the whole time, didn't know what to do, and to some extent had checked out. I remember lots of Fear of dying. You had the fear of dying. And we would spend a lot of time talking at night about I'm afraid I'm not going to wake up in the morning. I'm afraid I'm going to die. Because that is the reality. That is the end result of this disease. It is a fatal disease. And if you don't get treatment for it and you don't use tools, go to the meetings, really invest yourself in your own recovery and have true recovery, the end result is you're going to die. And anybody who saw you at the point that where you were sick knew something was wrong. You could just tell just by looking at you. And a lot of times people would think, oh, she's going through chemo because that's what it looked like. And this was a very thin person emaciated and looked ill. And even that in and of itself makes people distance themselves or reach out. And then when you reach out and there's no engagement, then... Well, we're checking out.
0: Well, I remember when we first got married, we lived in this little two bedroom apartment and we lived on the top floor or second floor and I would try and get up the stairs and I'm not kidding. I'd have to pull my legs up to the step to get up one step into the next step because I just did not have the strength anymore to get up there. But that didn't mean I wasn't going to stop doing what I was going to do. It just meant it was more of a struggle. And at night, Brian's right. When I would go to bed, I think that's when the fear came in the most because things started to quiet down, and I always remember having leg cramps at night, probably due to the potassium levels being so low, and I would just wake up with charley horses. And then at night, I would always put my hand on my heart and just see if I could hear it or feel it beating because I wasn't really sure if that was going to continue. When we were planning our wedding, I was probably around 70 pounds. And, you know, people knew something was wrong, obviously. But when you go in and you try on your wedding dress and you do all those things that are fun and exciting, I always had to have some kind of excuse that my mom or somebody could not come into that dressing room with me. Because if they saw my body, they would know for sure and they would stop that wedding. So there were things like that I had to deal with. And when I look back at our wedding, it's supposed to be a memorable time. And I was having a good time for as much of a good time as I could have. But looking back at that time now, I didn't enjoy my honeymoon. You know, I was so caught up in what I was eating and what I wasn't eating. And I didn't just enjoy myself. And with all the money that was spent on that wedding, (laughs) I look back and I think, I wish I had someone who had said to me, this wedding has to stop. You know, you we can't continue with it. It's gonna have to be delayed. And I think somebody did once say that we'd most postpone it, but I wouldn't hear of it. But now that I look back, if I had all the money in the world, I would love to redo that day and, you know, be a healthy bride and look beautiful coming down the aisle and have great memories from that day. But that kinda came with what I was going through at the time. And
1: yeah, and I think for family members and friends and if your loved ones struggling with this disease. You see the disease. You can have denial. It's kind of like the analogy of if you throw a frog in a hot pan of water, it'll jump right out. But if you put the frog in a room temperature water and slowly heat it up, the frog won't jump out. And so what we had was slowly eroding of somebody's health. And day by day, you see it every day and it's kind of you get used to it. It's weird to say, but I mean, it happened. This person who everyone would stop and stare at like, oh my gosh, I can't, this person's ill. You were like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Because you were so acclimated to what was around you. And, you know, as sick as your loved one is, and as sick as you see them get day by day, you think you see what the struggle is. You see the struggle with food. You know, at mealtimes, you see it. And then after mealtimes, where we talk about food and talk about food and this and that, and I maybe I should have eaten that, and maybe I should eat this, maybe tomorrow I should eat that. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say this. <laughs> if you know somebody that's struggling, right? And what I want to say is that the depths of the disease that your loved one is struggling with, you have no idea how deep that struggle is. And it is so profound and you are so removed from it. You see the effect of it, but you really don't have a sense of what's really going on in your loved one's day because they're not telling you that. They're living their addiction and in their mind, they're doing those things, which you have no idea how truly sick somebody that's struggling with this disease is, and I'm grateful that my wife had that person that said, we're going to do something today about it, because as time went on, we as a family had lost that capability, because every time we came up against it, we would get tears, it would be this big, long, drawn-out thing, and in the end, nothing really changed. There may have been indications like, well, I'll do this today, or I'll do this tomorrow, You know, I promise, then never followed through on, never held accountable, nothing ever changed. And, you know, in another month's time, maybe we had another family meeting about it. It just got to the point where we're not going to be able to affect that change. So I'm grateful that that person was there to say, we're going today. Enough is enough. We got to get help and we got to do something to affect that change.
0: Well, and I think the reason that she could do that and this person that helped me so much and told me, I, I got to find you somewhere, was she was a therapist, but she'd also dealt and had been an anorexic at one time. You know, I couldn't, like, BS her at all. I mean, she could read right through me and see exactly what I was doing. And that was a struggle. Everybody else I could kind of talk over and manipulate and and stuff like that, but her... She knew it. She lived it. And so I think that really worked for me. Another thing I wanted to talk about was I think what helped me, well, I know I had no conscience of, like, what I was doing. I didn't have any feelings of guilt. I mean, maybe I'd be a little sad for certain things, but I'd get over that really quickly. But once I got into treatment and I started working the program for months into it, if I was to start playing games again and start messing with my food plan or something like that, now I had a conscience of how I was hurting other people and I couldn't do it. You know, I knew I was getting better because I was thinking of how I was going to affect my family and other people. And I knew that I didn't have another chance. They always say like, when you're an addict, whether, I don't, I'm not going to speak for alcoholics and all that, but I've heard through our program that I've been with is that once you stop, you pick up right where you left off. And that was not a good place for me. You know, my mom, while we've been doing this podcast and getting ready for it, I saved every letter I received from family and friends. I saved my journals. And sometimes it's almost kind of irritating to go through them because you see how much I spoke about, I don't want to get fat. I'm afraid to get fat. How much are they going to make me? way now and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, oh, Dina, good gracious. Uh, could you think of anything else?
1: <laughs> Even when they started you on the Prozac, that was a big deal because that was a pill that was going to make me fat.
0: Well, no, and I, I think I was feeling more, I don't know if it was fat, but it was, well, yeah, because I knew I had heard people. No, because
1: that's what that's what yeah. your doctors told me. So, Well, but I was also <laughs> afraid
0: of getting addicted to something, but I wanted to go back a little bit just to say like, As I've been going through all these cards and journals and reading through them, sometimes I'm afraid of it triggering me a little bit, but thank goodness it hasn't. But I read a card from my mom, and I was trying to find it so I could read it to you guys verbatim, but she was sharing with me, and I didn't know it until then, that she had been planning my funeral. And she had already gone and spoken with a mortuary and— was buying my casket and stuff and it, you know, (sighs) you just can't come back from that. You know, I mean, it's just the pain I created for my mother and for my family, but especially my mother, because my mother and I had something very, very close. That was really, really difficult. I think I kind of hit my rock bottom with that a little bit, not completely, but a little bit.
1: I think as a family that speaks to how rock bottom we were, we were... So fed up (laughs) 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 with dealing with it and trying to get some help or trying to say the right things that would get action and get real, either medical attention or something, that it just was to the point where, like, I don't know what else to do. I'm talked out, I'm emotionally drained. You know, you just don't know what else to do. And from day to day, you may go, hey, well, maybe we'll try this or maybe we'll try that. And at some point we were just, I don't know what else to do. And I think that's maybe the place where your mom was in terms of, you know, I was planning your death. And to a certain extent, whether we knew it or not, we were, we were all doing that.
0: Yeah. I mean, she had already, <laughs> my older brother had already passed away at the age of 34 due to cancer. And then, Like seven years later, here I was.
1: Nobody understands what is going on. Nobody understands it. And if they say they understand it, they've gone through it. And to find that individual is a rare person. And you're just beating your head every day going, I don't know what to do to get my loved one help. I don't know what to do. I am so scared. I'm so worried. I'm so angry feel manipulated. I mean, you talk about manipulation and yes, I was being manipulated, but I had no idea I was being manipulated to the extent that I was. And part of that was because I was naive when I was younger and I didn't know how to help my loved one who was an addict. And even that wasn't understood. She had an eating disorder. She wasn't an addict. Addicts are, you know people that drink or people that use needles or something. I mean, the idea that an eating disorder was an addiction was even something so foreign that it didn't make sense. So, you know, you're all wrapped up in, I don't know what to do, I don't know what this is, and I don't know how to help. And that's the state we kind of felt, where I certainly felt at the time. Yeah. I just want to go back for a minute and touch upon the, you don't know how devastating this disease is you don't know the depths your loved one's struggling and you really don't understand and when you think you understand oh they're going through this you have no idea the depths what they're going through and it's only on the other side where your family member hopefully gets treatment and hopefully does maybe a 12-step or a 12-step program where they're honest about what they were doing in their disease, and they can read their first step to you that you kind of, the jaw goes open and goes, and you go, oh my God, how did I miss all of this? How did I miss that? How did I not know that was going on? And the answer is because you're being manipulated. And behind the scenes, this person is doing what they want to do. And you know, we've heard it all too. Oh, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm just doing what I do. I'm a naturally thin person. If you'd all just leave me alone, I'd feel better. And all that is just BS. And had I known at the time, what my loved one needed to hear was knock it off. I'm not doing this anymore. You get help or I leave. And then you have to make good if they don't get help. Because ultimately, You know, everybody focuses on the sick person. It's rarely that anyone focuses on the caregiver. And it's even worse when you're dealing with somebody with an eating disorder because everybody's focused on that, that addict in the center of the storm. Nobody sees you and what you do. It's exhausting and it's draining. I remember that time I was going back to school to get my credential. I was working full time and then to have this on top of it was just I don't know what to do. I have no idea what to do. when you have a broken arm, it's easy. You go get medical attention or you have maybe chicken pox. You go see the doctor and they give you a pill and it clears it up. When you have an eating disorder and especially at the time that we we're talking about, I don't think much has changed. That's a different topic. But I think so much of the medical profession doesn't understand what they're seeing. And either doesn't have the capacity to refer somebody to get treatment or doesn't really understand what this is, what they're looking at. So even if you can say to yourself, well, but they're going to the doctor there, you know, the doctor sees it. If the doctor was worried, you know, we do something about it. So it just doesn't make sense. How does she go to the doctor? The doctor's not worried. The doctor's not putting her in the hospital. Why should I be worried? They should know. And the fact is they don't know but you kind of put your faith in that like, well, yeah, "yeah, it'll be all right because she's going to see the doctor."
0: You know, as we wrap up this episode, I just want to give people some hope out there. I went to the doctors today, and I've always been scared because being anorexic for so long, it depletes my bones from calcium and all that kind of stuff, and I've always people have asked me like, "Maybe you should get see if you're going to, what your bones are look like and if you're going to have osteoporosis one day. So today I was like, okay, I'm going to ask. And I asked the doctor and he said, you know what? Your calcium levels look great. I really don't think you're going to have a problem. And right there, I felt so grateful because there's so many girls that I was in treatment with that lost their hair, that had bloated stomachs for life, that were treated when they were anorexic with electric shock, I can't believe that, but they were. No
1: lie. That's a true story. And it's
0: no lie. And that one girl, who I hope I can reach through this, um, if she remembers, she no longer could create tears because of all the electric shock that she had had.
1: But that's just more to my point about you put your trust in the doctors. Proof. A lot of the doctors don't know what they're dealing with. They think it's depression, at least in this time we're talking about this is the mid 1990s. This wasn't 1963. This wasn't McMurphy. This was 1990 ish. And this doctor was treating with electric shock therapy. And she's the reason this podcast is called, are you going to eat your fat? Because even in this place where, you know, a patient's handful of patients were getting treatment, they were living in this place. Every meal was a production number of misery and tears and, complaining and often regret and guilt and, you know, everything else that I'm sure you're aware of, she would still come out with Caddyshack quotes and every meal, everybody had to count how many proteins, how many starches, how many fruit, how many veg and fat, because that was part of the food plan. And she would always go, Hey, are you going to eat your fat? (laughs) (laughs) You know, even in the midst of all of this she had a light and really a a spirit that both of us admired. And so, you know, when it came time to name this, we kind of wanted to honor her and name it something that we both remembered this person being just a little pipster.
0: And she was great. And I really hope I'm not going to say her name, but I hope I can reach out to her. I hope she hears this and she, uh, reaches back to me. But anyway, I just want to give everybody hope that there is life after an eating disorder.
1: And it's not all misery and despair. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You have to hang on. If I can give anybody resources or if they need to talk or just need to vent or need to scream, shout, cry, whatever, I would make myself available for that. So if you need something, it's at gmail.com is the way to reach us. Please reach out to us. If you decide maybe you could give some ducats to the kitty for the production of this, you can do so at that same eatthatfat at gmail.com. And as always, I think we like to close with the serenity prayer.
0: Well, wait, I just want to say one thing. Well, we're you not going can- to
1: close with the serenity prayer Hold right on, now because okay. my wife has something to say so, and I didn't give her the fingers to wrap up.
0: Well, he was giving we're me gonna- the little snap, <laughs> but anyway, I just have to say to the parents out there, we get you... Stay strong. You can do this. Let us help you. And we're speaking, and everywhere I go, I share this podcast with doctors and everybody that I talk to. So we're hoping that we can spread this podcast out far and wide so that all of you guys can hear it. But we thank you for all your support so far. And we are going to close with the serenity prayer God, God, grant grant me the the serenity serenity to to accept the things things I cannot cannot change. change. The courage, the courage to change, to change things those things that I can. And,
1: and the, the wisdom to know the difference. difference. Keep coming, coming back, back. It works if when you work, work it, it. So work it. Work it. You You're are worth it. it.
0: Bye, guys. Thank you for joining us. If you found this podcast useful, or we have given you hope, and you want to reach out and contribute, feel free to do so at eat that fat at gmail.com. That's eat thatfat at gmail.com our pledge to you is that every penny that we get in contributions goes to production costs and keeping the lights on we will not pay ourselves but anything above and beyond production costs will go to benefit organizations that specialize in eating disorders please reach out to us if you need resources or you just need to talk you are not alone and there are people who care keep coming back it works if you work it so work it you are worth it